So yes, I took the time out, but for a totally different purpose compared with many. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, but I, I still have this same... I mean, admittedly, I didn't have children, so my career path was open to me to, to make what I could of it. But I had had all this time out, so I had to re-establish myself. Anyway, so I'm talking to Sean about my career and keen to get promoted to the exec team. And there was no vacancy. But he said to me, it seems to me that you're, you're trying to, if you're playing the lottery, but you're trying to get all six lottery balls and the bonus ball in one go. There's a couple of, there's a couple of lottery balls on offer. Yes. Because a, a sideways transfer was being suggested. Why don't you take that and see where it goes? Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Gillian Charlesworth is Group CEO of BRE, the Building Research Establishment, which is the centre of building science in the UK. Over a career that has taken her from the civil service via the Institute of Chartered Accountants to spending most of the 90s in the food and drink industry, having trained as a chef at Prue Leith's School of Food and Wine, Gillian went back to the desk, as she calls it, and put her newly acquired knowledge to good use as Head of Commercial and European Affairs at the Wine and Spirit Trade Association, before joining the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors in 2004. Gillian was named on the inaugural Kindness and Leadership 50 Leading Lights list in 2018 and has proudly offered her services as a judge for both the Women of the Future and Asian Women Awards. Armed with hard-earned ambition, confidence, self-motivation and assertiveness, she's been in her current role at BRE since May 2019. I'm one of four children and my parents are from the northwest of England, Lancashire basically. I was okay. born in Burnley in Lancashire. But my father was a bank manager, so he moved around a fair bit. And we I spent my basically spent my childhood near Birmingham. So you moved around with him when yes. he went to these different yes, places? Yes, yes, okay. we moved a couple of times. So my childhood was spent in Sutton Coalfield near Birmingham. I went to junior school there, infant and junior. And then, as it happens, as I was about to go to senior school, we moved to Wilmslow in Cheshire. So I spent my teenage years there. And then I went to Durham University. And at age 16, I decided that I wanted to live in London. Oh, really? Which was totally outside of any plan that any member of my family had ever had before. Where did it come from? Where did that idea come from? Uh, well, I came here with a youth group visit. And I just thought, I want, this is where I want to be. I want to be in London. My family actively dislike London. It's not just <laughs> they've never really? had cause to go and live there. Oh, really? Why? Yeah, they, is there a reason just, behind that? Or? It's a, north, you know, it's a northern, a northern thing. It's a northern family. Right. Um, my father avoided ever being transferred to London in his banking career. 
They just have no inclination at all. They don't mind visiting, of mm. course. What did your mum do? Did she work? She she started off training in a solicitor's office as a secretary, but she didn't work after she'd had my brother, who's okay. the eldest of the four of us. We never really worked again. So what inspired you about London? You visited, or it's the hustle and bustle, or I is think it just the building, the sheer size of it, or what was it? <laughs> no, I would say it's what still makes me proud to be here today, mm. and that is that I absolutely think London is a world-class city where people can achieve, there's a very big focus on diversity, mm. it's a truly, I mean, in fact, I've been here 30 plus years, it, it wasn't the metropolitan superstar that it is now, but um, I think it's, uh, it's a fantastic city, and I, I've always loved it, but I think it is absolutely a place of achievement. Was that what you were looking for, the kind of antithesis to Sutton Coldfield? Or, I don't know. <laughs> what kind of things did you like? What subjects did you like at school? Were you good at you know, banking, kind of finances, maths? Science, no, no, kind not of at stuff? all. No? No, I don't know quite how, how that happened. My father was a bank <laughs> manager and we all, did, we all did arts and social sciences, really. Well, my brother did various business degrees. But I, I went to a very academic girls' grammar school and I ended up studying French and Russian. I saw that on your LinkedIn. Yes. I thought that was a little bit random. It is. It is. Well, it <laughs> what is. kind of inspired you to do well, that? Well, what, what happened was, when I joined the school, the grammar school, the headmistress asked me which language, in addition to French, I would like to study. And my brother was already doing German, right. and the choice was German or, Fr- or Russian. So I, you know, as you do, think, well, I'm not going to do the same as him. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do Russian. Nice, easy language to Well, it's just so <laughs> difficult. In fact, one of my younger sisters also studied Russian and did a lot better at it than I did. So when I, when I came to choose A-levels, there was a lot of pressure on me to do English, French and Russian, as you might expect. Mm. And I said, I'm not doing English. I, I want to do French and Russian, but I'm going to do economics. So I did a bit of a combination at that okay. stage. But then when it came to choosing a university course, there was still this sort of urge to push me down the academic route. Years later, I looked back and thought, if only I'd done something more vocational like law, my career would have been very different. I, don't, I certainly don't regret anything I've done. But when you look back, you can see the influences mm. upon you. There was this sense of, you know, you've got to pursue academia because you're likely to end up being a teacher. Is that what you wanted? Did you no. feel like that pressure? So they were, were they trying to kind of fit you yes. into a stream or a yes. mould and you just weren't having any of it? Or well, not? I think in some ways, maybe age 18, mm. and careers advice, I don't think it's very good today, it certainly wasn't then. I think you just, unless you do have different role models in your life, you probably head towards what you know. And nobody in my family was a lawyer. So I didn't think about doing that. Do you wish you had? Well, no, I don't now. But, but there, was the a, time, there was a phase um, in my late 20s, early 30s, when I thought, if only I'd done that, I would be, you know, mm. have a different career path. How's your Russian? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was never great. Because <laughs> actually, that, that was the other thing, that I spent, as part of my degree, I spent a year in France. So my French was pretty fluent mm. by the end of that. And my, I spent a month in Russia, which was a fantastic month, but it, you know, it's not enough to really get the fluency. But the year in France was spent being a teacher, which I think is where people thought I was probably headed. Maybe I even thought that. 
and I, it was a complete disaster. I didn't enjoy it. I had no control <laughs> over the children. How old were the children? So they were every age between eight and eighteen. Oh, the older ones challenge. were fine, but the yeah. younger ones just ran riot. So at that point, I thought, no, there's no way that I'm going to be a, a teacher. So. So how do you come from graduating Durham mm. to mm. then going into chartered accountancy? I went via the civil service. Right. So. As I said, I had this very strong urge to live in London. I was also getting married to my first husband, who was already based here. And so I took a role, I took the role that was on offer, which was an executive officer level role in the civil service. It wasn't a fast stream role, it was literally a holding role. Were you mindful of that choice? Had you graduated and thought, I want to go into the civil service, I know the level I need to go in at? Was that in the forefront of your mind? Or were you a bit more open to other, other opportunities? I looked at a number of opportunities at the University Milk Ground, one of which was banking. I didn't get anywhere at all, even though my father was in the bank. And by the way, I wouldn't expect to get a leg up because my father I suppose it's, it can be expected though, can't it? Yes. Among, follow the family know. trait or yes. what everyone else is doing. It's yes. quite a natural thing yes. to happen. As and much as it frustrates people that it's nepotistic or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But at least, you know, you can say, well, I know what it entails. Mm. So I didn't get anywhere with that. Um, and I applied to a number of other London based businesses. But at the time, I wasn't really thinking about my career. I was thinking, I want to live in London. And so I did a, a number of different things, including taking the executive officer exam for the civil service, passed it. They, they slotted me into a department, the then Department of the Environment. Uh, so I took that. It was a pragmatic decision. Did you, did you enjoy it? I did to some extent. I learnt a lot. I think it's a very good grounding, actually, working in the civil service, because you learn to write well to express yourself you know, in a succinct way mm. when you're making ministerial recommendations. You learn process and procedure. You know, there's a number of things about learning, about working, that are actually quite well done, or they were in those days. It can be quite a shock to the system going into the working yes. world, having been at yes. university. I know where I work at the BBC, there are a lot of young people who haven't even come, gone to university, yeah. and it is literally their first job. Yes. It's almost like a rabbit in the headlights. Yeah, yeah. Deal with it. Yeah. yeah, like you say, it kind of establishes some key, you know, nine to five working, yes. administrative basics, all that, that right. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The relationship within the hierarchy, etc. One of my formative experiences happened there because my boss, quite honestly, was a bit of a bully. Mm. And um, I managed to overcome his bullying. What did he um, do? Well, he, when, when I left, the department to take up my next job he wanted to carry on sort of you know meeting up for coffee or whatever and I don't think he knew that he was actually quite an unpleasant mm. bully and I said no no I'm afraid that uh, do you mean strict and just a bit short-tempered rude just low-level sort of unpleasant behavior mm. just not a very nice person bad-tempered Hot temper. And it has a huge impact. Yes. I mean, it was my first job. He obviously thought that we had a marvellous working relationship and I'd want to carry on seeing him afterwards. <laughs> and I said, no, absolutely not. Good. No, the way you've behaved, I don't, maybe you don't realise, but I don't want to. Did that come as a shock to, shock to him? Yes. Do you think he re- didn't realise? No, he did not. No. That's interesting. No. And I, I think I've, since that uh, time, I've recommended a book called A Woman in Your Own Right, 
and it's a book about assertiveness and it just focuses on the point that nobody can take your own feelings and wishes away from you so the the best thing to do in a situation where you're uncomfortable is to just state the impact that it's had on you not try to second guess what they may be doing or thinking just, just say how you feel this is how i feel this is the decision i've made this is how you've made and, me feel uh, yes mm. and that was a that was a great lesson i wouldn't say that i've always managed to put it into practice in a brilliant way but it certainly moved me on you're mindful of it now yes do you think it would have been different if you were a man or was that not part of it I think I think that was. I mean, he wasn't suggesting anything inappropriate. No, no, I don't mean that. I just mean more. Was he behaving to yes. the men in the office the same way that um, he was behaving to you? He may have been. Yes, he may have been. But I, I've observed since in different career situations I've found myself in that man or woman, there's something about bullies where they can just sort of needle out the people who are a little bit weaker, mm. a little bit less likely to express their own feelings and wishes. And, and play on it. Yeah, and they probably don't even realise they're doing it. Just exacerbate the situation. Yeah. It's really sad, isn't it? It is sad, it is. Is there a person or a moment that you think in your career stands out for you as either a yes. breakthrough or like a yes. moment of revelation or something like that, or someone who's been influential in mm. your career so far? Yes, I would say there are two or three of those. A good example relates to Sean Tompkins, who I know you've met doing one of these yeah, um, podcasts. Yeah. He was my boss for a long time at RICS. Yeah, lovely guy. Yeah, and even before I became part of his exec team at RICS, he bothered to spend time with people like me, who obviously thought, you know, that I had some potential. And I was having a conversation with him once about wanting to be promoted. I was impatient because I'd had a my career path had been slightly strange up to that point. I'd taken quite a big chunk of time out to go and work in the food and drink industry. Can you so, just talk us through your path? Because you went to yes. the Institute of Chartered yes. Accountants. That so, was the kind of starting point. Yes. When I left the civil service, and the reason I left was because I couldn't see any career progression mm. at all. So I left and I went to work at the Institute of Chartered Accountants in their regulatory team. And spent four years there, enjoyed it, was promoted, you know, successful period of my career but at the end of that period and this is around the time when I was thinking I wish I'd done law or something more defined which mm. would give me a career path but then I thought it's too late I can't do that I mean that's a ridiculous thing oh, nowadays yeah. people do things at all ages but I just thought I'd miss that boat so perhaps rather bizarrely I decided to go and train to be a chef instead so I went to Prue Leith's School of Food and Wine. Did you really? For six months, yeah. How was that? Yeah, that was fun. Oh, it was good. It was. Yeah. Um, Are you a big foodie? Is um, that your passion? Yes, yeah. it really is. Mm. Yeah. So then I spent the, most of the 90s in the food and drink industry. Doing what? Doing... From a management perspective? Or well, actually doing, physically involved? I get, yeah, both, yeah. Okay. I got involved in a small business, which is a great experience. It was a struggle, though. I mean, it really is difficult mm. to make money in the food and drink industry, unless you're extremely famous or you're running a very big B enterprise. But it was fun, and you, you know, you can learn a lot from... Hard work, I imagine. Yes. Long, long hours. Really and, hard yeah. work. Weekends. You're really at the coal face, aren't you? Yeah. So in the end, I thought... I, I studied wine as well, and so I went back to the desk via the Wine and Spirit Trade Association, 
which is a body that represents wine and spirit importers to the UK. So I kind of got my feet back under the table in terms of regulation. There's a lot of regulation in that Why sector. Why did you make that choice? You just kind of it was tried a... that out, didn't enjoy it, or didn't want to like progress any further? Or... Do you mean in the food and drink Yeah, industry? yeah. It just wasn't possible to make a decent living. I see, okay. Um, and I thought, gosh, you know, I'm going to end up with nothing, because I just can't... Um, my ex-husband and I split up around that time, so I literally had no, had nothing to rely on. So there was an economic right. necessity, really, to yeah. go and get a, a more regular salary coming in. So was that quite a tumultuous time for you? Yes, it yeah, was. Yes. And actually, part of it was, I mean, the financial position was a, was a big part of it, but there was another thing as well about that, which was, sadly, in those sorts of industries, you'd get treated with minimal respect quite often. And even though I was part of running a small business, people obviously just looked upon me as somebody who did a bit of cooking. It, I just found it, you know, I couldn't tolerate it, basically. Mm. I didn't feel I wasn't making use of skills. I was being creative, which is something I'd wanted to do. But I just felt somehow that people were making assumptions about me, which just, I just couldn't, I couldn't tolerate so and I felt what, I in, what, to... in what sense, what kind of assumptions would you say? Just based on your skills or your knowledge or how long you've been in the industry or a little bit of everything? I think it was more that that sense that, you know, I've, I'm actually, I was a graduate. I've had two graduate jobs before I came into doing this. And there was a sense of, I think I'm probably wasting my intellectual skills. Oh, I see. Okay. That was part of it. But there was also this... And, and this is one reason why, I, would, I mean, there's many reasons why I'd never treat people in the catering industry with a lack of respect, mm. but people in that industry just get, they're, they're treated as wallpaper or almost not human beings, really. And I, I just couldn't, I, I wanted to be, to go back to being known and respected for my intellectual capabilities rather than creative I suppose. Did you personally think you were wasting your skills in the catering industry or was it something more societal that everyone was was telling you that you were wasting your skills? Yeah, I think it was a mix. I wanted to go back to being more stretched and I'm not saying it wasn't stretching because it was but in a different way Mm -hmm. it was about, it was the, it was the, the hard work, the long hours, the making a business work Blood, sweat and tears, um, literal, yes, literal. Yes, <laughs> yes. And the, and the highs and lows, the uncertainty, I mean, yeah. the, the financial position did come into Sounds it. Sounds amazingly stressful. But actually, it was, I suppose. But actually, one of the things that really always strikes me about it is that if you're doing a desk job, things hang over you forever. Mm. You know, there's always something you haven't finished or has yet to be done or resolved. When you're in, when you're doing event catering or the sort of stuff that we used to do, however badly it goes, it's over that day. (laughs) (laughs) So the adrenaline rush is is fun. There's a different kind of pressure and stress. But it's, you don't have things hanging over you. Probably worse for your heart, yes. <laughs> your blood pressure. Yes, but, but it keeps you fit. This is true. Yeah, this is I true. put on a, quite a bit of weight the first month. I stopped doing it. Oh really? Quite, yeah. Very <laughs> Going back to Sean and his yes, influence so, in your life. So I, after a few years of one Spirit Trade Association, I joined RICS, mm. Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. So I kind of went back to the the chartered accountants work. So regulating the profession. That's what I was doing. 
but I'd picked up quite a few other skills along the way, which I think is a really important point about careers. You should make the most of every opportunity. And I, having worked in a very small organisation, the one in Spirit Association, I'd picked up lots of different skills in public affairs and communications and PR. So there was it was useful. Every day is a school day, I like to say. Well, that's right. (laughs) Yes. So I was chatting to Sean about my career, having felt that I was ambitious, you know, I was ambitious at that point, and feeling that I'd not wasted the time, but that I'd spent some time out of Mm. this career path. How old old were you at this point? I would have been early 40s, and probably feeling like a lot of women feel if they've taken out quite a chunk of time to have a family and then come back in as a returner. Mm. I didn't think of it like that at the time, but I've often looked back and thought, that is what I was doing. I was a returner. But it wasn't a conscious thing in your mind no. at the time? No, I just thought, well, I'll see if I can get mm. back to where I was. But now it's quite a, an established point for many. And I think mm. I've proved, you can absolutely, you can come back and pick up where you left off. How many children do you have? I haven't got any. Oh, you haven't? No, no, oh, I didn't I see, have the children. I, I took the you ten years took out the... to, to do a different That's career. That's good, though, because it, did, yeah. it really goes to show that everyone probably needs to take stock yes. of their own situation, where they're going, what they're doing, what yes. they want, and where they're trying to get to as yes. well. So, yes, I took the time out, but for a totally different purpose compared with many. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. But I, I still have this same... I mean, admittedly, I didn't have children waiting to be cared for. So my career path was open to me to, to make what I could of it. But I had had all this time out, so I had to re-establish myself. Anyway, so I'm talking to Sean about my career and keen to get promoted to the exec team. And there was no vacancy. But he said to me, it seems to me that you're... You're trying to, if you're playing the lottery, but you're trying to get all six lottery balls and the bonus ball in one go. There's a couple of, there's a couple of lottery balls on offer. Yes. Because a, a sideways transfer was being suggested. Why don't you take that and see where it goes? And so I transferred out of the regulatory team into the RICS communications team. So he was telling you you were trying to run before you could walk, essentially. Yes. I mean, he, he was saying be open to yeah. what's actually on offer rather than hankering after what you think you want. Yes. So I did take it. And actually then the second pivotal moment occurred, which was that the person I was working for agreed to fund a, a course at Cranfield Management School. So I went to a course for... It was, a, it was a basically a strategic business leaders course for people who were trying to be promoted to the executive team. It was a great course, and what it actually did was give me the confidence to think, yeah, actually, I think I can compete with, mm. with these people. It also gave me the tools, the knowledge, which that 10-year period, I had yeah. not been building much of that. So I got myself back on track by some study and a, this course gave me the tools and the confidence to think actually I think I can go to the next level and then my boss left and I was well placed to be promoted by Sean to his executive team. Do you think if you'd not have had that conversation with him as much as it must have I think everyone will probably find it difficult to sit with their boss and be like Mm. I want a promotion or more money or more power Um, and then for him to say actually 
hold fire a second, it might make more sense if you did it this way. So that probably took a lot of courage on your part. Or were you just kind of ready for it and you thought, let's go in all guns blazing and see what I can do for myself and my career and my yes. ambition? Yes, it's a very, a very good question. Because actually, in some ways, there have been times when I haven't been that bold. Uh, but the, the thing about Sean, and we've had more than one, sometimes quite difficult conversations about my career, but actually... The point about him was, in these different conversations, he was allowing me to state my views and my ambitions. And he was listening. Yes, and he was responding with his own views and opinions, which was absolutely fair and right. Mm, Treating you like an adult. Yes. I think one of the most important things, and it's certainly something I hope to foster as as a leader myself, is to enable honest conversations. Many conversations that go on in businesses and organisations are probably not that honest because the parties just haven't got the wherewithal to have an honest conversation where, you know, they're open to any outcome. Because I could have said, okay, I'm leaving. He's pragmatic about that. I don't think he sees anyone as indispensable. I certainly don't. He's a businessman as well, isn't he, at the end of the day? Yes. But he, he just said... You know, he just gave me that advice, openly and honestly. And as it happens, I took it, and the rest is history. Across all, you, all the work you've done, is there anything that you're particularly proud of or that stands out for you as a defining moment? I mean, obviously, you're still going, so... Yeah, I'm still going. I'm still going. Well, I, I, I would say that my most recent change is, is probably my greatest success. So, after all of that slightly strange career path... Well into my 50s, I got my first CEO role. I think when I met, um, the first time I met you, yes. I was genuinely surprised that you talked to me. <laughs> I don't know why that was, because you just looked like you had it all together and a businesswoman and very, you could almost feel the power. Oh, <laughs> but you seemed like, I think, I think you might have just taken the role or you were just mm. about to start yes. it. Yes. And you, were quite, you, did, you did actually seem a little bit trepidatious mm. as to what was about to happen or how it would play out. So how yeah. has it how has it been? Well, it's been fantastic. I, I haven't looked back. And the reason for that is partly the fantastic grounding that I received at RICS, because it's, it's not a dissimilar challenge that I'm, I've taken on. And so I had that, all of that behind me. Mm. So, you know, fantastic grounding across all aspects of running an organisation as part of the, the senior team. And I was... You know, I'm, I'm not ruthlessly ambitious, but I am ambitious, and I wanted to reach that level. And for me, the crucial point is that people often find the right type of function for them. They find the right organisation for them with the right values and purpose. But what they fail to do is work out what's the best level for them. And I've known for a long time the best level for me would be the person in charge. And that's not because... I'm a, you know, I'm not a megalomaniac, but I wanted that responsibility. I wanted to be able to make my own decisions. I wanted to put into practice my leadership ideas. And you know what your own skills are as well. So. Yes. So going into a role as a more mature starter, 
I've just felt very comfortable, and I, I actually think that I'm probably better placed than many to take on, on the but challenges. But I don't feel like that is some more mature. It feels like you're probably the best person because of all the experience that you have had up to this moment. Yes, I mean, I had to, I had to prove that I could get the job, but well, I suppose one of the reasons I felt comfortable during the recruitment process was mm. because I did feel I'd been through many similar challenges yeah, in my previous... Yeah, yeah. But also, I felt comfortable with the level of responsibility. I felt that I would be able to take risks that perhaps a younger person just wouldn't be ready for, because I think you just become more and more comfortable mm. with ambiguity, with challenges that, you know, some of which may be fairly intractable for anyone, uh, and more confident in your own ability. But yeah, I haven't, I certainly haven't looked back. And I think having a really good network of support mm. which I've built up is another really fantastic component of it and going to the Women of the Future and Asian Women of Achievement events and the kindness events has only con you know continually reinforced mm. that there's so many different people there some yeah. more senior some more famous it's you know I think we're all in awe of each other actually yeah, absolutely. I always feel that when I go to those you always feel insignificant but hugely inspired yes. right at the same time, yes. <laughs> which yes. is quite a unique situation to yeah. find yourself in. Everybody there has got some fantastic talent. They yeah, they be really there they have. have. So how did you get involved? Yeah. This brings us nicely on to yes. the Women of the Future. How yes. did you start to get involved? Well, again, we're back to Sean, as he may have told you. I mm. um, think he went to his daughter's school. Yes, and gave him um, a curry box yes. that he couldn't pay for. That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so he, um, he brought Pinky to RICS. And we had a couple of leadership sessions with her. Mm. And then we began to sponsor the awards. And I began to I became the judge for the Women of the Future category. And so I met I met all of the women who came through that. So five women a year coming through. And I created a network with those women. Within um, the company. So well, they'd been shortlisted they Yes, I mean they're all they're not all members of RICS. Right. Some are engineers. Oh, I see. I see. Of course, because yeah, it's real estate and construction. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So they're all professionals. They're members of either RSCS or maybe the Institution of Civil Engineers mm. or one of the other professional bodies. But they've naturally fallen into a network, which is we've got a WhatsApp group, oh, which is um, a great support network. Mm. And Pinky always holds RSCS up as being a sort of beacon of what can be done. Yeah, she really does. With, and and actually. It's true, we didn't have to do that. We could have just let these women you know, go off and carry on with what yeah. they were doing. We didn't have to gather them up. A lot of awards do that, don't they? It's just that you get the accolade and then see yes. the side and yes. do what you like with it. But yes. it's not quite like that with this. But you, having a professional body for people to coalesce around does mm. provide a natural home. But it's, it's not a formal thing. It's a, you know, it is literally a WhatsApp group with some very active people. Mm. And ones who attend events make sure that their firms are sponsoring more women to come through mm. for the awards. So yeah, it's really created a great network. And I'm sure that many women in that network would put it down to successes they've had. Promotions, Give setting up new businesses, getting new jobs. It's incredible. It gives you the confidence, it doesn't it? First and foremost, you're yeah. almost empowered with the confidence. Yes. And then obviously you go on to... Yes. And the encouragement that. is fantastic. And I feel that myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm a female in the built environment in the same way as the rest of them. 
And I've received that encouragement in, in starting this new role. And also you were on their inaugural kindness and leadership yes. list as well, yes. in 2018. Yes. Well, I would say that you asked earlier about greatest achievements. I mean, to, to my mind, that was the best accolade I could ever have. And in fact, it was two of the women in that group who nominated me. Oh, how lovely. Um, That's really nice. Yes. I knew they had nominated me. And I, I knew that we'd nominated Sean as well that, that year. And I was thinking, well, there's no way that um, two people from one organisation will get it. Anyway, the rest is history. We both were on that list. And it was one of the proudest moments for me in my career to be on that list. Nobody could say anything better about me. But actually, I've used it as well because I've used it to explain my leadership ethos, which I think is a crucially important point. I've already had to make some pretty tough decisions in my new role, as you do. Using that award, really, sort of, the the people knew that I'd had that to explain what Mm. do I actually mean by kind leadership. Your reasoning. And to talk about, you know, having to make decisions which are right for the organisation, but always, whatever I'm saying to someone, I'm always treating them with respect and dignity and kindness. It was good to be able to set that scene out. You know, you may have heard that I've got this, I've received this accolade, Let's be clear, I'm not a soft touch. (laughs) Let's define what kindness means. People do have that misconception of kindness. Oh, you're kind. That's lovely. And it's a thought, no, that's not the point. It's about, like you say, dignity, respect, treating someone how you would want to be treated. It's those things that you can't really make it airy fairy because it's actually, that's integral. Yes to a workplace, yes. and clearly that's what you do in yours. Yes, well, I hope I do always achieve that every day, and um, also encourage other people to behave in the same way. One of the biggest mistakes is not, you know, most people aren't rude and bullying and difficult. It's actually failing to say things that people are guilty of. You know, when you find yourself having to let someone go, have you been absolutely clear that they're not really the right person for the Mm. job? Or does it come as a horrible shock to them? That also is not kind. No, it's not. We need to be more honest, calm, clear, make sure that people know whether they are doing a good job, whether they've got the right skills. And if they haven't, is there anything you can do to to turn that Mm. around? But if people aren't even clear that you don't really rate them, yeah. and you don't think they're really the right person, then it's always going to come as a horrible shock, and that in itself is an unkind. I have some quick-fire questions. You've, you've done the first one, so your greatest success is kindness and leadership? Yes. Your yes. greatest failure? I would say I am not good at accepting a mistake, learning from it, and moving on from it. So that's an ongoing failure. Do you want to do that quickly? Are you yeah, well, about the time it takes you to acknowledge it or more that you, it's, you have hope that something's going to improve? No, it's just brooding too much okay. on things that have gone wrong rather than saying, OK, that happened, I can't rewrite history, mm. I'm going to learn from it and move on. And I think you can waste a lot of time, you can undermine the confidence of people around you if you're dwelling on mm. on errors yeah and you can't focus on learning from them and that ultimately affects performance so i think i've had some particular things that didn't go well but i wouldn't say they were the failure i think it was my failure to deal with them in a timely way that was the failure 
That's interesting. So, yes, I would always say try and work out a way of moving on from mistakes as quickly as you can, learning from them, but moving on. Yeah. Okay, the mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration, as yes. you know. What does it mean to you in both your personal and professional life? Kindness, we've already talked about mm. the definition of it. It's fundamentally important, particularly in a world that's changing so much. People are going to find themselves buffeted around by a lot of change, and if we as leaders can't kindly and respectfully take people through that, we will be failing as leaders. I think leadership is now means something completely different. I think collaboration, we live in a very competitive world, but because of technology and the availability of ideas and data and sources of information, it's really quite difficult to keep competitive information secret these days. So we have to find new ways of, of dealing with things. And actually some of the problems that we're trying to solve and the challenges we're trying to rise to are so complex that you can't expect any one person or organisation to tackle them on their own. So I think we are going to have to find new ways. Thinking about climate change as the big existential challenge for the human race. Without collaboration, bringing different thinking and ideas together, that is not going to be solved. Going nowhere. Different behaviour is needed. It's a buzzword, but it really has a a lot of meaning for us. Is there anything that scares you? Apart from spiders. Um, <laughs> You're not a fan of spiders. Horrendous, horrendous <laughs> fears. You can get these little devices now that scoop them it's up. Good. I know, yeah. I can't even go near them. Okay. Horrendous. Uh, but no, I don't think so. I'm philosophical. I mean, my, my philosophy on life is make the most of every single day uh, because that's all you can do. That's the best you can do. Is that what you do? Yes, every day. I think about how I'm going to make the best of it and enjoy it. And I'm very energetic at work, I'm very energetic in my home life. Where did, um, your, where did your energy come from? Just, uh, well, it's funny you should say that. One of my sisters asked me. <laughs> <laughs> Were you making you her feel want? tired? Yeah. Yeah, when said, do you stop? <laughs> <laughs> I think it is, it is absolutely that zest for life and that feeling. Don't waste a moment. I mean, I'm not saying I never sit down and just mm. spend some time thinking or... Because that's part of it. Uh, yeah, and I, I love reading. You know, I'm not always running around doing things, but I do go out of my way to do things that I want to do, things that I think are useful. And I think it's... Uh, I suppose, you know, you get to a certain age and you realise you have got to make the most of it. I think when you're younger, you just think, well, well decades ahead. Mm. But I would say to anybody, I can assure you, it goes in a flash, so make the most of it. What's left on your to-do list? You write some fantastic blogs, Gillian, so I'm hoping that writing might be part of this. But. Well, yes, and in fact, I would like to do more writing. I would like to find time to do more writing. I do, I do an internal blog now at BRE. It's a business-focused mm. one, as you can imagine. I think I would like to make sure that in a world where a lot of businesses are going to really struggle, I want to be one of those business leaders who actually makes their organisation better, more successful, bigger, having a clear sense of purpose. I mean, our role is very much in the field of building safety and sustainability. So we're doing things that are highly useful for society. But I really want to make sure that we, we thrive at a time when many pressures, much change going on. Not all businesses will thrive. It's probably the last full-time role that I will do, I think. 
I want to make sure it's, you know, I want to go beyond a reasonable success. I want to do something quite notably better than a lot of others will. Do you think when you were growing up in Sutton Coalfield, you ever imagined that you would be doing this and be where you are now? No, I didn't. Have you no. made yourself proud? Yes, I am proud. Because I didn't talk about the further back history of my family, but my grandparents were, you know, I was the first generation to go to university in our family. And it's not that far back that, that my family were working in the cotton mill in Lancashire. So we're a good example of social mobility, actually. And, you know, I, went to, I didn't have any private schooling or anything. I feel that I have made the most of what I had. And yes, I did have parents who made me do my homework, all of that kind of thing. But I think my self-motivation has been a strong feature. And I, I'm proud that I have got to the level that I have using all of these different experiences. I think I always say to people now, you really do need to think about your career and plan it. Mm. I didn't, really. <laughs> I just sort of <laughs> It was for you, it's okay. It is, I, know, but I don't think these days you can be so random in your career choices. Well, maybe. <laughs> maybe you can. But I think it is about, it's about learning from every single thing. However irrelevant it may appear, mm. learn from everything. And make sure that you understand what skills you're getting yeah. as you go. Make sure you learn how to transfer those to the next challenge that comes along. That's going to be the way of the future, I think. It'll be taking generic skills and applying them to different problems. So, yes, there is something to be said for hopping around. But um, I, I certainly don't have any regrets. And I think, if you can say that, that's a good basis for going on to whatever the future holds. It's been a genuine pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.